Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. My special Brexit Day podcast with Gisela Stewart will get underway in just a second. But before that, I wanted to say a huge thank you to those who have recently signed up to become regular donors to Spiked. Spiked has no paywall or subscriber model. To continue doing what we do, we rely on donations from our supporters, particularly those who give money every month. So if you enjoy our work, and if you think it's important that magazines like ours continue to stand up for Brexit and for democracy, then please do consider becoming a regular donor. One-off donations are brilliant and always greatly appreciated, but it is by building up our bank of regular supporters that we can really plan for the future and for bigger and better things. Just £5 a month can have a huge impact. So. To those who already give, thank you. And if you don't give, but you would like to, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button to sign up. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thank you. And now on with the show. What's been so different about the referendum is that in all my time in politics, you could have really heated discussions about whether am I right to say do a particular policy. This debate has been so different in the thing that if you're a lever, you are bad. And if I'm a remainer, I am good. End of conversation. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Gisela Stewart. Gisela is a politician and campaigner. She was born in West Germany, but has lived in the UK since 1974 She was the Labour MP for Birmingham Edgbaston for 20 years, from 1997 to 2017, and she was chair of Vote Leave, the key campaigning group on the Brexit side in the EU referendum of June 2016. In that role, Gisela became one of the most high-profile campaigners for Britain to leave the EU. She travelled the country and appeared in the big TV debates, always making the case for a clean break from the EU that would allow us to take back control of our borders, our laws and our trade. Following the victory of Brexit, Gisela became chair of the successor organisation to vote leave, Change Britain. Change Britain has made the case for honouring the result of the referendum and for creating a genuinely sovereign democratic nation in the post-EU era. Gisela is, in my view, one of the most articulate defenders of the idea of Brexit, and she also rather conveniently shatters the myth that Brexit is something that only posh right-wing men want. Gisela, welcome to the show. What a kind introduction. <laughs> and you know what just struck me is there would be a whole generation out there who will not know why you call it West Germany. Yes, that's true. I think I'm one of the last, the old generation that knows why that is the case, but there'll be lots of young people who won't know. Yeah, and the big bits of history of, of a divided Germany, which was reunited in, in 1989. Um, and it's amazing how quickly we forget things. So. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So at the time of recording this, we're heading towards the 31st of January. There's all the discussion about Big Ben bonging and what kind of celebration we should have and how much we should invest in it, whether we should play it cool in order not to annoy Remainers, all those kinds of discussions. But I wanted just to start by asking you what the 31st of January means to you. What do you think it means politically after more than three and a half years of struggling to get this referendum result respected? It's really important that people see that we have left the European Union. Those who uh, have voted for that, they wanted to be clear. Uh, we've had three and a half years where, you know, you could pretend to to say, oh, we can leave the European Union, uh, but we keep the, the single market and the customs union and all those things, which essentially meant we can leave the European Union, but still be a complete rule taker. Yeah. And so for me, it's a big moment. And when you did in the introduction and said that we were campaigning to take back control of laws, borders and, and our trade, people sometimes say, you know, what do you mean by that? And I say that when I go to the ballot box and elect a government, is that not only do I elect the people who are the government, I also elect a group of people who have got the power to decide on the policies. Mm. If, if you're voting Greece, for example, uh, during the Euro crisis, yes, you could vote in the most left-wing government, but your policies were determined by the European Central Bank and, and by the big countries. Mm. So it's that bringing together of the people and the policies. Yeah. So it's really a celebration of democracy and the idea of democracy, which is that we should have the right. If, if someone's making a law that we have to live by, we should have some capacity to influence who is making that law. It is. And I do know and, and, and fully acknowledge the last three and a half years have been very divisive. And there was an interesting broadcast not long ago by Lionel Shriver, who was one of the few intellectuals who, who made the case for, for Brexit. And she observed, and I think she was right, when she said uh, there has been a problem in the last few years, that the Leavers were too obsessed with having won, not least because uh, for, for a lot of them, it's been a long time since they've last been on the winning side. Mm. Whereas the, the Remainers were very much obsessed with having been right. It's, it's a bit like the Labour Party in December last year when they went and saying, well, we won the moral argument and our policies <laughs> prevailed, but, you know, it's just the voters didn't vote for us. And I think both sides, I hope after the 31st of January, can say, look, the world has changed. This was a significant moment in our country's history. It's no longer good pretending that you could turn the clock back. It was a national referendum. And I think the delivery of the referendum also has to be a national exercise. Yeah. And that's the challenge, I think, for the Tories now. Mm. In a moment, I want to ask you about the past three and a half years and just dig down into what those tensions were really all about and, and also whether they can go away quickly or whether it will take time. But I want to just kick off by asking you about your own experience and your own embrace of Euroscepticism. How did you come to Euroscepticism? So in the early 2000s, you were sent by the Commons to take part in a convention in Europe about the future of the European Union, constitutional arrangements in the, in the European Union. Through those experiences, you started to have your doubts about the European project. Can you just explain uh, what you were doing there and what started to impact on you that this might be a, a problematic institution? I think you have to rewind it almost by where I come from. So I was born in Munich 
sort of 1955, sort of the post-war generation, where the econom- German economic miracle it was economically prosperous, but its political structure of Germany was one very much determined by the occupying forces that they imposed a deeply federal structure in order that power does not get too centralized. Mm. So it, be- it was a very weird experience to come to the United Kingdom where the word federalism was a- an absolute F word, and it was seen <laughs> as a-, a-, a structure which is centralizing power. So I kind of looked at thing, and I remember going into to, to the convention and saying at the time, there are three things which we, which I need to bring back to the Commons for that to be acceptable to my colleagues in Parliament. And whether you call it a constitution uh, or, you know, as it ended up being the Lisbon Treaty, really didn't matter. But it had to have three structural things in there. One of them was you you removed the the desire for ever deeper, closer union. So mm. you widened and deepened. You you had to define. Mm. The second one was you had to have a mechanisms where powers would go to the centre but also be returned to the centre. And it wasn't a question of which ones there were. If you end up with a constitutional framework, it must have mechanisms for powers to flow both ways. Mm. And the third one was actually quite funny because I I also said it had to have a mechanism by which you would leave the European Union. Mm. And that was very contentious. And so what they did in that draft, they, they had what in essence was the expulsion clause. So it said any country that hadn't ratified the constitution within two years would be asked to leave on the assumption that the one country which would have a problem ratifying it would be the Brits. Little did they anticipate that the first country that rejected it in a referendum was France, Mm. followed by the Dutch. So it never came to a referendum in the United Kingdom. They put the constitution into a sausage machine and what emerged was the Lisbon Treaty and the now infamous Article 50. Mm. So that never was a really thought through process by which a country could leave. It was a turned around expulsion clause. And I, I approached that project actually with a lot of energy because I thought, yes, they, they do need to have structures which people can relate to. They have to have a voting system where when you vote in the European elections, it has to mean something. And then I realized that this was an institution that actually didn't want to change at all. Yeah. Not only its unwillingness, it almost seemed incapable of changing. And every time there was a rejection by the voters, the answer was more Europe. Mm. And at that mm. stage, I wanted a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty in 2005 because I thought there, there are clear options. You either have the status quo or you have that deeper integration, which was in the Lisbon Treaty. But after that, I fell fairly silent, you know, on 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 Europe. Uh, I wouldn't have joined UKIP. I mean, this wasn't sort of my political goal. Mm-hmm. But once David Cameron called a referendum, said he'd been to ne- negotiate, where essentially he asked for nothing and got nothing, I thought, I can't endorse this. Mm. But he could have come back with something that would have persuaded me to to stay in, and that was... If he'd come back with a deal which said the European Union accepts as of its future structure that there will be some countries who are part of the single currency and some countries which are not, and we have two structures which are in one big thing, I would have said, you know what, we can do that. Mm. Because I still would argue that the 2016 referendum result 
was the logical consequence of the opt-outs which were negotiated under John Major in the 90s, in the Maastricht Treaties. Mm. Because the United Kingdom said, we will not be part of your single currency. And the United Kingdom said, we will not be part of your free travel area called Schengen. And in a sense, us then leaving was a logical conclusion right. of the fact that they had introduced the euro. Right. I'll come on to the referendum in a second and the role that you, the key role that you played. But going back to 2003, you wrote a piece in The Guardian with the wonderful headline, I am not convinced, which <laughs> was about your experience in Europe at this convention. And, and you, you write in that piece that democratic legitimacy is not mysteriously divined by a group of self-selected people meeting in Brussels. And you talked about how something like a constitution or the deepening of European Union arrangements or really any change in the European Union structure at all ought to be a matter for parliaments and people and not simply government-appointed representative. So I, th I think very early on, there was a sense from you, and it was a growing sense among much of the British population, I think, that a, a key problem with the European Union was the lack of democratic legitimacy. And it became pretty clear that their attempts to magic up democratic legitimacy just were not going to work because the structures weren't in place for any form of genuine democratic engagement. And it's quite curious because the, I also wrote a, a Fabian pamphlet called The Making of Europe's Constitution. And that came about because I returned from Brussels, uh, having worked for best part of 15 months on what I thought was a, a workable compromise in the last 48 hours, sort of the nation states barged in. All sorts of changes were made, which I thought would be negotiated, which have been checks and balances. And I think this must be the only time in my life where I turned down the opportunity to drink a glass of champagne. Uh, <laughs> the, there was this big reception in, in the building where they were playing the Ode to Joy and they were drinking champagne. And I thought I'm not going to be like the wicked stepmother in, in some grim fairy tale and make a fuss. So I was there at the beginning and I just thought, I can't, I, I can't, I can't be doing with this. Mm. And I still literally remember uh, walking out of the building and not having have my glass of champagne. And then I go back to, to the UK and I was sort of simmering away in my head. I kept thinking there's something really wrong going on here. Mm. And uh, a fellow MP was on the unfortunate place of being on a train journey with me back to Birmingham. And all the way from Houston to Birmingham, I just kept going on and on and on about how this was just wrong. And he finally said, well, why don't you write it down? And <laughs> this was his polite way of saying, could you just shut up and let me read the newspaper? Um, but I then wrote it down. But I also knew that the minute I, I came out publicly with those criticisms at a time when Tony Blair was prime minister yeah. and this was not government policy, I was kind of crossing a ru political Rubicon. So the night before actually pressing the button to publish this, this, this Fabian pamphlet, uh, I went to see a, a, a colleague up in the Lords and I said to him, I said, when is it, when is it justified to commit political suicide? And he never asked me what I was about to do. He asked me three questions. He said, are you about to do something which is going to lose you your seat? And I said, no, I think the good people of Birmingham probably be quite behind me. He said, well, in that case, it's not political suicide. Mm. He said, how long have you thought about it? I said, oh, God, I've been going on about this for the last six months. So he said, well, it's not a fit of temper then. And the third thing is, in six months' time, it turns out you were right and you never said anything mm how would you feel about it? And I said, well, furious. <laughs> and he just said, so kiddo, why did you go into politics? Mm. And ever mm. since then, 
where they was then arguing for a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty or the, the vote leave or all those things. I, I always was, well, now in my mind has become the Chef Rooker test that, you know, you pause and you ask yourself those questions because you should never do things in a tantrum. You, mm. you, but if you think it's the right thing, at some stage, you've just got to do it. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Sticking with the 2000s, so you mentioned the French and the Dutch who rejected the constitution, and then it gets refashioned in various ways as, as the Lisbon Treaty and the Irish reject that in 2008. So f- for me, my experience was I didn't particularly think much about the European Union prior to those events, but I remember in the 2000s being quite shocked that you had these pretty open revolts against the idea of expanding the EU or deepening its powers. And they were either ignored or, in the Irish case, forced to vote in a second referendum, which almost happened to us as well. I think the end of the 2000s, really from 2005 to 2009, which is when the Irish are forced to vote for a second time, I think that's quite an important moment for lots of, I guess they're referred to as ordinary people, voters. I think that's a, that's a, there was always an element of Euroscepticism, particularly the, in, in the UK. But I think that really was a moment when that stuff grew and people started to recognise that the European Union is in many ways impervious to the disagreements and, and the anger of ordinary European people. And of course, I can understand where that comes from. And the risk of now sounding very, very nerdish, in the last six months, I've been doing a lot of just reading, going back to, you know, where did this power of the people come from? And if you go back to Athenian democracy, or if, if you go back to the American constitution of Madison and Jefferson, the debates, they've always seen governments to as a vehicle by which you protect governments from the mob rule of the people. Mm. There was always this assumption that governments should be the elites. And how do you insulate the elites from the demands of the mob? Mm. And we kind of have forgotten that these were the origins of that. And the European Union is still pretty much run on that. And you can understand it if you're there in 1945, you see a totally shattered Europe. You see the, the sort of the dark side of nationalism having caused destruction. So you think, well, this must be run by a group of wise people. They mm. almost take on a priest-like insulation and sanctity. And so I could see how this started. But, you know, 50, 60, 70 years on, you you cannot go on doing what they, for example, did after the last European elections, where you have the big positions of the president of the council, the president of the European parliament, the foreign minister, the representative on, on, on the European bank is German, French, Italian, Dutch, and Spanish. Now, if you were one of the 11 member states from former Eastern Europe who sort of joined in 2004, you go and say, hey, folks, where's my voice? And yeah. what's more to the point, none of these big positions were elected or voted for. Mm. So there is no progression towards becoming more accountable. Yeah. Even though for the last 20 years, they have talked the talk, but yeah. never walked the walk. I think that's such an important point, because I think the European Union recognises its own 
lack of democratic legitimacy and probably is quite concerned about that and might try to discover other forms of moral authority that don't necessarily come through the demos or direct democratic engagement. I think they're very conscious of that. And then when you had those experiences in the 2000s, so there's the European constitution experience, which you wrote about very well. And then there's the public rejection of the European Union's plans. And then, you know, we fast forward to David Cameron. And as you say, he goes there to try and get some concessions and doesn't make a good fist of it and doesn't get any concessions or any changes. And therefore we have the referendum. And I think through that whole process, you know, lots of people now make the argument, and you will have heard this a million times, that British voters were hoodwinked and misled by tabloid newspapers and demagogues. But there was a long process through which it became pretty obvious to many people that the European Union couldn't change, that it, it was incapable of becoming more democratic, incapable of opening itself up to that kind of democratic pressure. And so when we get to 2016, it seems a fairly good bet that people will seize that opportunity to finally leave the European Union. And was, was that your experience? when you? So when you become chair of Vote Leave, was your experience that people were thirsting for this kind of voice, this kind of say on the future of the European Union? It, it's, it's a rather complicated answer and uh, at, at the risk of upsetting one of your previous podcast guests. Um, when the referendum was called, and you've, you've got to remember, you suddenly have a very short period in which you have to create structures, uh, which normally political parties spend literally decades working on. And my view was that if... UKIP and Nigel Farage get designated as the official leave mm. group, two things would happen. You would have a very, very divisive campaign. Mm. You know, if people thought 2016 was divisive, it could have <laughs> been worse, I tell you. But also they would have lost. Mm. And that to me was the, the worst outcome because I could see an intellectual argument uh, which said, let's have the referendum, uh, people have their say, and we settle the, the question. Of course, we, we know that even once we had the referendum and a clear outcome, it took another three and a half years before the question became settled. But to just further a grievance by the mechanism of a referendum, that those people already felt nobody listened to them, would feel even more that nobody's yeah. listened to them without an outcome, that I regarded as pretty dangerous. Yeah. And that's why... I joined the group on that. And what I found is there were two strands. It wasn't just a feeling of not being listened to in the European context. There was another very big question, which we still have not yet resolved and must address and resolve. And that is, who speaks for England outside London? Mm. You know, Tony Blair's Labour Party, I think quite rightly, started a process of devolution of power to, to Scotland, to Wales, to Northern Ireland, to, to London. Uh, but we kind of left England untouched. And there was a big debate as, as to whether it should be city regions or regional government. Regional government was rejected in the Northeast. David Cameron comes in and even then goes further and closes down regional government offices, starts with elected mayors in some places, imposes police commissioners, and we start to have a debate which has begun on the left in particular as to how do we speak about England? How do we speak about patriotism? And I think the, the Leave vote in 2016 was a English vote and a European vote. Mm. And, and on my side, the, the only person and full credit to him 
who started to do some work from the left uh, and at the time was seen as a very lone figure was John Denham. Uh, who's now at the University of, of Winchester. And, um, you know, Morris Glassman, uh, is also beginning to work on that, but these are still very, you know, lone voices. But mm. that conversation, I think, is now the most pressing one. Completely agree. I agree with you as well about the problems that could have arisen if Nigel Farage had been the sole leader of the, the Leave movement during the referendum, because, you know, whether one admires Farage or, or is critical of him, the undeniable fact is that he's a very divisive figure and it it could have very easily been caricatured as hard right effort to, you know, remove the UK from the European Union. So I actually thought the um, creation of Vote Leave and, and your leadership of Vote Leave was actually played a crucial role in the entire referendum in, in the sense of providing that kind of more mainstream political argument that people could engage with, I think, at a very real level. And, but one of the things I want to ask you about vote, vote leave is, is despite the fact that you did that, despite the fact that you and others made a very good case, a very clear case and a very measured case for removing ourselves from the European Union, vote leave is still talked about by some remainers as a corrupt campaign. It lied. It misled people. It's dangerous and all these kind of often quite hysterical claims that are made. How do you respond to that? What's what's your defence of vote leave against the kind of sometimes slightly hysterical arguments of some Remainers who think it's kind of ruined the nation? I think we've now reached a stage where either people are prepared to listen or they're not going to listen. You know, they've made up their mind. And once people have made up their mind, it's the same with, with you know, if, if, if you're someone who canvasses in politics, you know, you knock on doors and you know whether it's worth having a conversation or... So the, to me, immediately after the referendum, when we set up Change Britain, mm. one of the key things, my, I mean, A, we at that stage rather naively thought we could bring Leavers and Remainers together. And we didn't anticipate that Theresa May, well-meaning and a, a I mean, she, she herself is a good person, but she, she was not the person capable of saying we've had a, a national referendum and I therefore must reach out to all sides to make it a national implementation. So these dividing lines became very obvious. And so we did quite a number of polling on what exactly made people vote. Mm. So if the, the argument that the voters have been lied to stood up to, you know, was, was really that, I think in subsequent elections, you would have seen some pretty different election results. Yeah. You know, but opinion poll after opinion poll, focus group after focus group told you that, that not only did people still want to leave, those who voted to leave, but uh, the, the number of people who described themselves as reluctant remainers, uh, i.e. I voted remain, but quite frankly, now that we voted to leave, could be now just please get on with it, mm. was growing. So I think the, the fact that the voters didn't know what they were doing was most explicitly uh, proved to have been wrong, yeah. I think, in the general election in, in December. The second thing which I find quite extraordinary is that, you know, the 350 million on the bus. Yeah. Now, it is true. That was not the accurate figure. It should have been 372 million. <laughs> but we thought 350 million was catchier uh, because essentially, and don't don't you dare cut this in such a way that all you get is that I say, it is true. It is true. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Um, but essentially the argument was, the, is, was this a net figure? Or was it a gross figure? Mm. If you go back to the pink, pink book, you know, our gross contribution and because the rebate was never as of right, 
the rebate was a, a negotiable mm. amount that was the gross contribution. And I've had subsequently a, a absolutely hilarious encounter with the, the then editor of the Financial Times, Lionel Barber, who I sat next to at a dinner. Uh, and it was the night before the, the FT was running this story about the Brexit is going to cost us, I can't remember, was it 10 billion or 100? I mean, it was just an enormous <laughs> figure. Uh, and he was telling everyone that's going to be the editorial, that's going to be the front page. And I turned around to him trying to be nice, you know, said, uh, Silana, is that a net figure or a gross figure? <laughs> And he said, well, it's a gross figure. So I sort of said, oh, well, so the 350 million on the bus, we're all right then. And he just turned his back to me and refused to speak to me for the rest of the evening. And I think that is what's happened. What's been so different about the referendum is that in all my time in, in, in politics, you could have really heated discussions about whether am I right to say, uh, do a particular policy, uh, whether it was from tuition fees, whether it was I- Iraq, even, even the vote on Iraq was one on an argument on why we should intervene or should not intervene. This debate has been so different in the thing that if you're a lever, you are bad. Yeah. And if I'm a remainer, I am good. Yeah. End of conversation. Your mention of that and also of the bus, the, the controversial bus advert, br- brings me nicely onto my next question because I, the thing that always irritated me so much about some Remainers' ob- obsession with the bus is that it really spoke to their view of the electorate, which has this kind of very gullible mass of people who saw this bus and then were instantly switched to the side of voting leave. And if they hadn't seen the bus, they would have been a bit more sensible and not done that. It's it, driven by this kind of... Um, and this comes from a very small number of Remainers, because as you said earlier, many, many Remain voters have now fully accepted that democracy must kick in and take place. But there are, as you all know, because you've had many clashes with them over the past three and a half years, there's a Remainer elite, shall we say, who have refused to accept the referendum result. And, And what they express, not only through the bus issue, but other issues too, was precisely this kind of very binary moral divide. We're the good people, you're the bad people. And it actually made debate very difficult because it no longer became about trying to convince people or using facts or using information. It became almost a kind of zealous moral crusade of the bright, good, well-educated people against either demagogues like Gisela Stewart or even worse, the throng, the idiots who made a very bad mistake. And did that surprise you that it became so intensely divided and, and there was a huge amount of elitism and snobbery in some of the Remainer arguments? Were you surprised by how intense that became or did you expect it? No, I really did not expect that. The, the thing which sort of kind of amused me was, you know, if, 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 you, if you rewind the, the, the referendum campaign, so before its official start, the government sends out a leaflet to every household, which cost them more than the entire budget of the Leave campaign. You then had George Osborne, I can't remember how much was every household going to be worse of was 4,900 yeah. or whatever. <laughs> you had the president of the IMF. You even had the American president. You had the Labour Party registering it as a Remain campaign. The Lib Dems, you know, the, the Tories were neutral. They were had both things. So you had just about every figure, establishment figure under the sun telling the voters to vote Remain. And then you tell me one single red bus <laughs> with 350 million on the side. I mean, if it is though, I, 
that's great. I must do this kind <laughs> of thing again. Uh, <laughs> but, but when you had then had the debates and you occasionally say at the beginning when I still thought you could bridge this gap and I would say, what about George Osborne's, yeah. you know, threat? And they can say, yeah, but, but he lost. So it almost was this post hoc thing of saying that you're, you're bad because you won. And therefore anything the losing side does is now completely irrelevant because we lost. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. Someone was trying to explain to me why this went so deep. And he said, what you've got to realize is there's a, there's a group of people who David Goodhart would call them the, the anywheres, you know, who, who are largely in control of their lives. You know, that doesn't mean that they don't go through rough times, but that's okay. But they, they can always determine their destiny in, mm. in many ways. And they've got used to, to roughly speaking, getting their way. And by leaving the European Union, they suddenly feel they have been, something's been taken away from them. Mm. And it's been taken away from them by people who they neither respect nor much like, mm. but also really don't know. Mm. You know, and that's why when they, they thought they could threaten the, the people in the Northeast or in Lincolnshire by sort of saying, you're going to be that much worse off. And they responded by saying, do you know the kind of things which we've put off with in our lives? Mm. Do you have any idea what we've been through? You know, yeah, we think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's the bit they just neither ever understood, nor I regret to say ever respected. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. And particularly on the point about the, um, we're talking about a class of people who have been getting their way for a fairly long time and whose lives are okay, pretty well off, pretty comfortable, and who have had a lot of political influence. And then suddenly the rug is pulled from under their feet by people in the Midlands and the North and, and parts of Wales and former working class, um, industrial towns. And to them, that is deeply shocking. So they respond, I think, in this very rash way, which takes me on to the question. One of the, I think, key questions, which will no doubt be talked about for years to come is, I think, the question of what drove the leave vote. Now, of course, the, the prejudiced view is that people didn't know what they were voting for and they were mistaken and they read a Daily Mail editorial or whatever it was and it misled them. The more sympathetic view, which I think could be equally wrong, is that it was entirely about economics or, or that what they don't realise is that there will be this economic consequence of what they've done and therefore it was a very stupid mistake to have made. But there was more to the vote for leaving the European Union. It wasn't simply an economic calculation. It wasn't simply people worrying about their economic situation. There was there was a deeper underlying political cry made in that vote, do you think? Absolutely. And you, you sometimes get statements which you find yourself agreeing with from the most unexpected quarters. And it was the previous governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, who, un unlike his successor, did not say anything during the referendum. But he did go on the Today program. I mean, first of all, he said, you have to ask yourself how the sixth largest economy in the world with a reputation for democratic resilience and administrative capability has managed to get itself into such a mess post-referendum. Mm. And I think that kind of was a reflection of how seismic mm. a constitutional and identity decision it was. But he went on to say, that the Remain campaign argued on economic grounds, whereas the vote to leave was about 
identity, community and belonging. Mm. And I think he was spot on. Yeah. That's what that vote was about. And that's also my, my earlier when I said, you know, this, this question of, of Englishness is, is an important one because we all have a deep desire to belong. And it may be that you end up like, I remember having a conversation with a, a German footballer called Hitzelsberger who played fast and willow at one stage. And when Thomas uh, went and we compared notes, because he could roughly speaking come from the same part of the world. And I said to Thomas, I said, it's a great place to get away from, isn't it? And, <laughs> you know, it's a great place to be born and grow up in this, <laughs> this rural idyll of, of Bavaria. But then you want to, you know, some of us just wanted to pack our bags and mm. that's what we did. So, so it doesn't mean that you, sense of belonging is one way that you always stay there. Mm. You know, you still move. Yeah. But I think we all have a desire to know where our roots are and identify with it. And, and I think that's been totally ignored. That, yeah. And it's been belittled. That's, that's, you see what I could just about live with the fact that it's being ignored. That's fine. If you don't need it, that's okay. But don't sneer at yeah. the majority of the population who do want to know their community and they do want to belong. And I think it's a very human desire. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I think with the sneering, I think one of the worst aspects of the fallout from the referendum result, which I think could be difficult to repair, is not only the instinct to ignore these people or to sneer at them, but also to brand them racist. And I think one of the things that I've come up against many times in discussions with Remainers is this argument that some of them make that desiring a sense of belonging or feeling an attachment to the nation or believing that a nation, a sovereign nation should have control over its own, own borders, all these things which would have been fairly routine beliefs 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are now signifiers of racism. The one thing that's made me angry when I've had these discussions is the notion that all these 17.4 million people, or at least a good number of them, were driven by kind of latent racist views, which I think is such a libel against that section of the electorate. I mean, it's even, you know, I mean, there's a bit in there of, which kind of amuses me more than, than annoy, but if I look on, on, on Twitter, the number of people who keep telling me to go back home and mm. it's time that I get deported and all kinds of things. And I think, well, because the country wants to deport me to is Germany it's deemed as not being racist. Yeah. Well, you know, and, you know, I just don't want to go down the road of what is and isn't, but the, I, I think you need to be careful when you use words which are powerful. Yeah. Because, you know, as sort of George Orwell reminded us when he sort of went to Spain and during the Spanish Civil War and he's, he encountered fascism and the left would not acknowledge that. And, and he sort of said, if, if you, if you use a word for something which it isn't, then when the real thing happens, yeah. you, you haven't got the word for it. So if we go around calling, you know, anybody who voted to leave extremists and fascists and Nazis and God knows what I've been called. Well, when that real thing hits you, what are you going to call it? Yeah. And so there's been a debasing of, of the language, which, which I think is a real problem. 
but also kind of you you make it sound as if 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 those people who voted leave weren't worth anything that they mm-hmm. weren't didn't have as much right to have an opinion as as everybody else and that i found hurtful i really did mm. Absolutely. And which brings me to a question that I want to really wanted to put to you, which is the question of Britain going forward. Now, that's something obviously you think about and have spoken about. And Change Britain is concerned with making Britain as successful as possible outside of the European Union. But I wonder how easy will it be to repair these divides? Because I think it's going to be very difficult. And I'm not even saying that from a pessimistic point of view. I think it's always good to know where the divides in a country are. It's very fruitful. It's very galvanizing. It leads to, it can lead to debate. It should lead to debate. So I don't think it's necessarily bad that there is very clearly deep, deep fissures in this nation, geographically, generationally, politically, and in terms of class and so on. It's good to know that. My view is that it will be hard to repair this and it could take a long time, precisely because as you described it, it became not simply a political divide over the constitutional future of the nation, but a deep moral divide between the good people and the bad people, the cosmopolitan people and the racist people. So how long do you think that kind of Remainer elitism might linger and how long do you think it will take before these divides can become something a bit more, a a bit more national unity? I think we will know that the the particular leave and remainer uh, division is healed when, if you go anywhere in London and they don't start the conversation. Of course, I was a remainer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think outside London, the, the question of whether you were a leave or a remainer uh, really no longer mm. that much. You know, but the the challenge, and that is that is a real challenge, is that you've just mentioned two big dividing lines, which if we don't start addressing them, then we will as a nation have a deep problem. The one is intergenerational. We did, with Change Britain, we did quite a number of polling and interviews around the 2017 election. And whilst it was quite, you could explain the election result, what puzzled me was the attitude of the under 35s. And if you look at the under 35s, and it's not a left-right their view, broadly speaking, is that they they were quite keen on nationalizing the railways, not because they thought the means of production ought to be returned to the workers. It's because they thought, well, you know, they were they were nationalized, then you guys privatized them. Now they cost the earth. The service isn't very good. Well, you might as well nationalize it. It was a kind of yeah. thing, well, you might as well do something with it because what is isn't very good. They didn't believe in the contributory principle. Mm. I, why, you know, why, why are you asking me to start saving for my pension? Because by the time, you know, I come to retirement, if should I ever retire, uh, there isn't going to be anything there. Mm. And they love the NHS. And the only conclusion I drew from that is that actually the under 35s think the state isn't very good at delivery. Mm. You know, tell me one question to which for the most of the lives of the under 35s, a, a problem arises and they think the government or the state is the answer. However, the NHS is that one all-embracing institution which they felt that whether it was good or bad, it was good or bad for everyone, everywhere, of all ages and of all backgrounds. So it's it's not a rejection of the collective. And therefore, the challenge, I think, to A, do the, the intergenerational, but also the, the geographical divide, where again, you, mm. you were so right, the, the lesson that they have to learn is that the the areas who received the highest money from the European Union were also the areas which voted to leave. Yeah. So you don't buy voters with money. 
it's a short-term fix. The long-term fix is you empower, you give them decision-making powers. That means the, the way you do taxation, and that's where the intergenerational and, and the, I think the regional come together, because it is through taxation. If, if under 35s don't think the state's ever their answer, they're not going to be willing to pay their taxes mm. unless they can actually see something within their lives, which the taxes deliver. So if I live in Birmingham and, you know, the West Midlands regional mayor has a local tax raising power on, say, transport, and I suddenly discover something which will be very familiar to Londoners, but, you know, a West Midlands, say, an Oyster card, and you say, but that's paid through. And I, I establish a relationship between my local taxation and the delivery of the state. That is a beginning. Mm. Also the danger, I think, the, for the conservatives that they think that they've smashed the, the red wall. Well, I do think this was a case of having their lent them the vote. Yes. And just as quickly as it went one way, could he go back the other way? Very much agree with that. And I agree that the generational tensions are a very serious problem in this country. And in fact, post-Brexit, post-the vote, there's been a lot of explicit anti-old people sentiment has come through in some of the commentary. You know, they've ruined it for us youngsters. Maybe old people shouldn't have the right to vote in in constitutional referendums and, and various other you know, very anti-democratic and quite prejudiced arguments have come through. And I think it will take a while to patch up some of those sentiments and make sure that, you know, we don't encourage young people to think in such a divided way. In relation to the Red Wall and Boris, now you notoriously, in some people's view, encourage people to vote for Boris in the December election because, and I think you were dead right about this, you thought that a vote for Boris would be a vote for Brexit again let's get Brexit finished after three and a half difficult years. But you now say that you think many of the Red Wall Labour voters lent them his vote. So do you think, and and I think that's kind of what you were proposing too, you weren't proposing that everyone become a Tory, Mm. but lend them Mm. the vote in order that we can resolve this huge democratic question. In your view, what does Boris and the Conservatives, what do they need to do if they were interested in keeping these voters and if they were interested in actually giving them what they expect to get through the Brexit process? What could they do if it was a, if that was an option? I mean, it's interesting. You know, it, it was quite a journey and it's all, all my, my journey seemed to be made something to do with Europe. So, you know, when, when Boris became prime minister, and I've been saying for some time that the only way we could get out of this deadlock was a general election on the basis that if you're a company, you've got a problem and you've got a team to deliver it. And Meisty can't change the problem, which was delivery of, of the referendum result. And the team for three and a half years was going around saying, it's just so difficult. We just can't do it. Well, you know, the only answer is you change the team. And mm. the only way you could change the team was a general election. Yeah. And then, of course, it, it leads to what do I do in this general election and what was the Labour position? And I just got to the point where I thought we require a government with a governing majority. Yeah. It, there have to be enough of them to, to implement things. And we had this bizarre situation of during an election where you had a former Labour prime minister telling people that there must vote so we have a hung parliament. So a prime minister urging the the country to return a, a parliament which can't govern. And you had a former Tory prime minister telling people not to vote for the Tory party. So, you know, that just shows you what an unusual election this was. And then it literally got to the point that if if I think, and this is sort of these, these, these are crossing Rubicons in, in, which aren't easy to get there. If that is what I truly believe, 
that we require a governing majority. That's why I did that sort of jokingly called it Friends Reunited um, of the team which was campaigning yeah. for, for the leave vote of coming together. And, and I do remember saying in the press conference, my, my values are still the same. I'm not a Tory and voting for uh, for Boris on Thursday to deliver Brexit doesn't make me a Tory and doesn't make you a Tory. Mm. Now that takes back to what do they have to do? I think the key, the absolute key thing is to show respect to those voters. And you show respect by giving them decision-making powers. You trust them to do the right thing on their own. So don't do, you know, city deals where every pound you give to, to, to Manchester or, or Sheffield or what have you and saying, and you have to spend all this on buses and this is all you have to do and things. No, give them streams of income over which they have a say and show them some respect. And I think that's really yeah. all voters ask for. Yeah, I think that's a really good description of, of where we're at because voters want to be taken seriously as voters, as people who have decision-making capacity and that it ought, it ought to be listened to and acted upon. And I think that's one thing that people very often miss about the vote for Brexit. It was really about taking back control, not simply of borders and trade and so on, but voters wanting a sense of control over the country in which they live. And I think any politician who fails to recognise that probably will be in trouble pretty soon. Speaking of politicians who fail to recognise that, my, my last question for you really is about Labour. So you're a Labour MP for 20 years and you were a Labour MP while you were leading Vote Leave, but Labour has screwed up pretty badly. And the, the result in December was catastrophic. And I think a lot of that, not necessarily all of it, but a lot of it does spring from the Brexit issue and the Red Wall voters who said, why aren't you making our desire for Brexit happen? What's your view on what Labour needs to do next? And what's your view on, on which of the remaining candidates might do a better job of reconnecting with those base of Labour supporters? You know, what I find so extraordinary is that the, the, the subject of Europe has actually divided the, the main political parties historically in, in different ways. So, you know, in, in the 70s, it was the Tories who took us in, but Labour was divided, you know, Harold Wilson's referendum. In the 80s, you know, the Tories are absolutely united over Europe uh, on the face of it. But then Labour discovers uh, the Shakti Law Commission who yeah. give them equal pay and all those kind of things, delivered all the social goods, which, you know, Thatcher denied them. So suddenly we became this unquestioning uh, pro-European party. Yeah. And and then it, it, it flips again. And I think that None of this has actually ever happened because you, in, in the recent past, that the parties looked at themselves, what this was all about. So uh, for the Tories, it was about, you know, sovereignty, whereas Labour instinctively was almost uh, more cooperative, more international. So you could see it, but it, it wasn't sort of, didn't go very deep. And that's why I think they never really talked about why they were the party they said they were, the pro-European. I think the only Labour leader who made an absolutely coherent pro-European case. And if it hadn't been for Iraq, which sort of took him off that path, was, was Tony Blair in the first term. You know, he said, this is a strategic decision. We're going to play our part. Uh, ministers cooperated. We were sent out and worked with our sister parties across Europe. All kinds, you know, he, he was a fully engaged one. And then we thought of dealing with Europe by just not talking about it. Mm. And that happened on both sides. And I think... If you go into a general election, and, and of course, let, let's be honest from my point of view, my greatest ally 
has been Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Uh, because he, you know, his own voting record has been one of being, he has always been a Eurosceptic, whereas at least, you know, it, it took me to the year 2000 and not <laughs> before I got there. And when I look at the, the current leadership and I just, you know, now that we know it sort of is, is down to, the question is about three, which mm. probably have got a chance, chance yeah. of winning. I saw Lisa Nandy on the back benches and vice they were still in Parliament a number of years ago. And there was this Wigan MP who you could tell was always sort of, you know, she was being very thoughtful. And then she started doing this work in towns and cities saying we have got big shifts of democracy. You know, once upon a time, the city centers were the deprived area. Now it's where the middle-class professionals are working. The, the affluent would live, live in the shires. Now it's just an aging population. So she started doing work on realizing that what was happening is that the cities were getting redder and yeah. the blue areas were getting bluer. And why that is a problem is because if you want to form a government, if you want to have a majority in, in the British system, you, you need to straddle the two areas. You need to have a common ground. So, so I've been impressed with her mm. well before there was ever any talk mm. about uh, party leadership. I think if Keir wins, then he has a chance to do what Michael Howard did for the Tories in 2005, steady the ship. I think Rebecca Long-Bailey, who I don't know, I, I, I would find difficult to see that, that she could straddle that job which has to be done. And if Lisa Nandy does it, it'd be fascinating. It may be too yeah. early for her, but it'd be fascinating because I think there's something so rock solid about it. Diesel Stewart, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.